Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing old adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we'll be looking at Midnight Rogue, book 29 in the Fighting Fantasy series. Before that, I have the pleasant duty to thank a new patron, someone who has been kind enough to put their hand in their pocket to support my nonsense by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Richard, thanks so much for your support. It means a lot to me. Everyone who backs me on Patreon receives a bunch of cool stuff. The swag currently stands at two game books and two complete mini RPGs, but uh, I'm on the absolute cusp of sending out a brand new game book to all my patrons. It's been playtested, it's been proofread, and now all I have to do are the many, many corrections before it can be sent out as a thank you to everyone who makes this podcast, and the bonus episodes in particular, possible. Now let's get down to business. Midnight Rogue was written by Graham Davis, who is most famous for co-writing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, a great RPG system that I played a lot as a youth. This is his only fighting fantasy book, which is a shame, or at least I hope it's a shame. It's one I haven't played before, so it could technically be Bobbins. I mean, it seems unlikely given the pedigree, but stranger things have happened. The book casts us as an apprentice thief tasked with finishing training in everyone's favourite fighting fantasy city, Port Blacksand. I'm thrilled to be back on such familiar ground, and it speaks highly of Davis that Jackson and Livingstone were happy to let him iterate on a portion of Atlantia which they had made their very own. The illustrations are by John Civic, who also did the cover art, which shows a dimly visible thief creeping up on a glowing jewel, which is watched over by two ominous gargoyles. I really like the cover. It captures the idea that you'll be this shadowy and slightly mysterious figure in search of extravagant wealth. Now, let's move on to the rules and character creation. The system is classic fighting fantasy with a little twist. You've got your skill, stamina and luck all present and correct. You've also got your choice of any one of three potions to restore skill, stamina, and luck. And you've also got my beloved provisions, ten of them, to sustain you on your mission. I think that the mission is supposed to take place over a single night, which makes ten meals seem a bit excessive. But who doesn't comfort eat when they're nervous? As well as the traditional sword and leather armour, we've also got a small hand lamp, a torch, and a backpack. We are cautioned that we've only got space for six objects in our backpack, because more would make being a thief challenging. Apparently, enough food to feed a hockey team takes up one slot, and a small potion takes up a second. That definitely makes sense. I mean, I'm not going to quibble. I like the idea of having a limited inventory. and adds another level of strategy to the game, and it also raises the possibility of being able to throw in items that don't have any utility in the game just to use up those inventory slots. We also start with five gold pieces and as always it's impossible to tell how much these are actually worth. A fantasy gold piece is the most unstable currency in the universe, with a single gold piece traditionally worth anything from about one pound to about a hundred. What's really cool is that you also get to choose three thief skills from a list of seven. The text doesn't explain what they do in detail because they are all more or less self-explanatory. They are pickpocket, picklock, climb, sneak, 
hide, spot hidden and secret signs. We'll be told in the text when we can use them and yeah I really like this. It's a tried and tested way of adding complexity to the adventure without actually adding very much in terms of cognitive load because all the hard work is being done by the book. It's simple and it adds so much flavour to the adventure. I think this is one of my favourite ways of iterating on the fighting fantasy system and I don't think it's a surprise that it's also one of the ways in which role-playing games in general first started to iterate when they moved beyond being concerned only with combat. Back in my Dungeons and Dragons days I often used to play rogue characters because I enjoyed finding ways of applying my list of skills to diverse situations so this is right up my street. Okay I think that's enough preliminaries let's jump into Midnight Rogue and my character. Okay so my character who I've given the I think sneaky but also heroic name of Meniscus Megaborstal has a skill of 12, a stamina of 21 and a luck of 11 making them one of the very best characters I rolled up for a considerable time. For thief skills I've selected Climb, Sneak and Pick Lock because they feel like the most core thief skills to me. We've got the torch, we've got the lamp, we've got the sword, we've got the leather armour. I've taken the potion of luck which is what I always take. We've got our 10 provisions, we've got our 5 gold pieces. I think we are ready to jump into the adventure. Background. You stand in the meeting room of the Thieves Guild of Port Blacksand. The room is crowded with pickpockets, beggars, burglars, cut purses and thieves of all descriptions. All come to witness the test of apprentices. I feel as though there's a much less exciting adventure based around passing the Thieves Guild test for becoming a beggar. Rannick, the master of the guild, stands alone in the middle of the room. Does any member here present know of any reason why this apprentice should not be tested according to the traditions of the guild? He says. Even though you know this is just a formality, your stomach knots as you wait for a challenge. When no challenge comes, Rannick turns to you. A week ago, he says, a merchant named Brass acquired a gem known as the Eye of the Basilisk. He will doubtless have it hidden somewhere in or around the city. His symbol is a coin. That is all the information you will be given. For your test you must find and steal the Eye of the Basilisk. Dusk has just fallen outside and you have until dawn to complete your test. Do you understand? You nod. Then, says Rannick, it just remains for me to say... Be careful, remember your training, and good luck. The assembled guild members murmur their agreement as you leave the meeting room to collect your equipment. Although you have checked it a dozen times already, you go over it all one last time as you make ready to leave the guild. There are a sword, a few coins, a hand lamp, a torch, a tinder box, some food, a lot of food, a magic potion supplied by the guild, and a backpack. Having satisfied yourself that everything is in order, you leave the Thieves' Guild by one of the over a dozen concealed entrances and head 
into the darkened streets of Port Blacksand. And that's the background. So compared with some of the previous books we've dealt with in the series, that is incredibly terse, but it gets the job done. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's an absolutely classic setup for an adventure. You've got a specific setting, Port Blacksand, you've got a limited amount of time, and you've got a very, very clear and measurable objective to achieve. I think if you were going to be doing an introductory role-playing game set in the world of Thieves, this would be the absolute ideal setup for that kind of mission. So yeah, I appreciate the brevity. As you leave the guild, your mind works quickly, listing the places where you might find some information as to the gem's whereabouts. Most of the rich merchants in the town have houses near the field gate. If you can find Brass's house, you may be able to find some useful information there. Then again, the Merchant's Guild is just across the market square, and if Brass is an important merchant, he's bound to have a suite of offices there. Finally, there's the Noose, the area of town around the Thieves' Guild. You hardly ever see a merchant there, but it's the best place in Alansia for picking up all kinds of gossip and rumours. Where will you try first? So I should say there is a picture of the Thieves' Guild. Pretty good, I would say. Not exceptional. Um, you can see Rennick in the middle of a nicely drawn gaggle of ne'er-do-wells. And there's something about him that sort of reminds me a little bit of Boise from Only Fools and Horses. There we go. Lovely, specific UK cultural reference for you there. In terms of this as an opening, I like that we're given three possible leads to chase down. I am going to go for the noose to see if I can pick up some gossip and also because I'm playing a thief. I want to hang around in the thief bit and do thief stuff. So yeah, we'll go for the noose. Do like a meaningful choice straight out the gate. As you make your way along the noose, you think about likely places for picking up information. At the edge of the noose is a tavern called the Rat and Ferret, where thieves, beggars and all sorts of people come to drink. The noose is always filled with beggars at any time of the day or night, and they see and hear all sorts of things. And on one side of the noose lives Madame Star, the clairvoyant. She spends her days in the market square telling fortunes, but at this time of night she would be at home. So, what will you do? So we could go to the Rat and Ferret? try and find a beggar, visit Madame Star, or just leave the noose. So again, really, really meaningful, impactful feeling choices. Of the three, I'm always going to go to the pub if the offer is presented to me. So we will go to the Rat and Ferret and see whether career alcoholics have some information that could be of use to us. You go into the rat and ferret. The bar is lit by smoky oil lamps and the pipes and cheroots of the inn's customers add to the peculiarly rich atmosphere. The landlord, bald Morrie, looms behind the bar like an unfriendly mountain. At a table to one side, three disreputable-looking men are playing pinfinger, stabbing a knife into the table between their fingers faster and faster. You go to the bar and order a mug of ale. Cross one gold piece off your adventure sheet to pay for it. So gold now reduced to four. And I guess we can infer that 
one gold piece is worth about four to five quid. So we can now ask Bald Mori if he knows anything about brass or ask to join in the game of Pinfinger. Don't particularly fancy trying not to stab my hand as a way of passing the time. I quite like my hand and plan to use it for things over the course of the adventure. So I guess we will go and ask Bald Mori if he knows anything about brass. You ask Bald Mori if he knows anything about brass. Certainly, he says with a wink. What's it worth? Are you prepared to pay for the information? If not, you can go and play Pinfinger or leave the tavern to try your luck elsewhere. Otherwise, you can decide how many gold pieces you will offer, then roll one die. If it's equal or less than the number of gold pieces, then presumably he's willing to talk. Ooh, that's an exciting little mini-game. So I will offer, I guess, all four of my gold pieces, working on the principle that if I need stuff in future, I'm just going to nick it. And we get a one! Excellent. Bald Murray takes your money and leans over the bar. He's a big merchant, he says in a low voice. His symbol is a coin and it's on everything that's his. That goes for his house too. It's on the corner of Short Street and Field Street, just by the field gate. He dips a finger into your ale and sketches a symbol on the bar top. Do you have secret signs? I do not. Blast. Mori sees that you don't understand the symbol and hurriedly wipes it out with his hand. He turns his back on you and begins to clean some mugs very busily. You try and attract his attention again, but he doesn't seem to notice you. What will you do now? You can join in the game of Pinfinger or leave the tavern and try elsewhere. Oh, this is making me wish that I'd taken secret signs as my skill, but it automatically makes a replay very appealing. I think this is one of the things that skills are really good for, because usually in an adventure you'll pick up items that turn out to be useful later, and there isn't often much scope for that kind of thing in the very very early part of the game and skills give you this ability to create exciting and interesting choices right from the very start of the adventure so yeah really really cool bit of design as always so um yeah we're going to go elsewhere and try again because we now know where the merchant's house is oh we can go back to try and find a beggar, we could visit Madame Star or we can leave the noose. Well, I've got no money. Beggars and fortune tellers will both require cash, I assume, so we're going to leave the noose. You leave the darkened alleyways of the noose and head out to the rest of the town. Where will you go? To Brass's house or to the Merchant's Guild? We will go to Brass's house. Go for the incredibly straightforward approach of breaking into his house and nicking things. You set out towards the field gate. The area between Palace Street and Field Street near Lord Azur's palace is the richest part of town, and you know that you will have to be especially careful there. The city guard is doubly watchful in that part of town, always keen that the people with the money should see them doing their duty. After you have gone a few yards down Thread Street, you see a bobbing light approaching, and hear the sound of booted feet. There is a picture of a pair of guards, walking through the town with their spears and a rather fancy lamp on a stick. It's really good. The guards look appropriately sinister. They are wearing a lot of chainmail. 
like really a lot of chainmail. So we don't have the hide skill, so that's a problem. You dodge into a shadowy doorway and stay very still. The light and the footsteps come closer, and you hardly dare to breathe as a two-man patrol from the city guard approaches. You close your eyes and hope that they will go past without noticing you, but suddenly the light is shining straight in your face. Well now, what have we here? says a gruff voice. Come out of there and state your business. What will you do now? Try to escape through the door behind you? Try and bribe the patrol? Make a break for it or attack the patrol? So skill 12, I probably could beat them both in a fight. I don't think escaping through the door behind me is a really good plan. I imagine it'll be locked. I don't have anything to bribe them with unless they want a lot of food. And uh, making a break for it seems making a break for it seems like it could lead to more trouble than it's worth. So I'm actually just going to stab them. When in doubt, violence. The guardsman looks surprised as you draw your sword. You are alone, dressed in leather armour and armed only with a short sword. While they are both armed with spears, helmeted and dressed in chainmail from neck to foot. You must fight both guardsmen together. And it gives you the rules for fighting more than one opponent at the same time, which is nice. Nice little reminder, just checking them. They are as standard, so I get to choose which one I'm going to fight. And I fight that one as normal, and then the second one will have a go at stabbing me. And I've got the beat his attack score as well. Anyway, for the first time in this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the guardsmen. They reduced my stamina to 17. Breathing hard, you limp away from the dead guardsmen. You don't stop to rifle their bodies. Someone is bound to have heard the noise of the fight. And reinforcements could arrive at any moment. You go on your way, staying in the shadows and avoiding the main streets as you look for Brass's house. Sad that we don't get to loot the bodies, but makes sense. You make your way along Thread Street to Field Gate, keeping to the shadows. You never know when you might meet another patrol. After a while, you come to the corner of Short Street and Field Street, where you see two houses. The one on the right is an impressive two-storey stone building, and you see the symbol of a coin cut into the doorpost. The house on the left is a smaller, half-timbered building, and has the symbol of an oar on a painted sign over the door. One of these is the house of Brass the Merchant. Do you know which one? I do. It's the one with the coin. So we're going for the one on the right. You look all round the two-storey house for a possible entrance. There is no back door, but you find two possible ways in. A front door which is locked, and a drain pipe which leads up to three windows on an upper floor. If you have pick-lock skill, you may try and open the front door, and that is exactly what I'm going to do. You work quickly on the lock, and after a few seconds there is a satisfying click, and the door swings open. You step inside, closing the door softly behind you, and find yourself in an impressive marble-floored hallway. A stairway on your left leads up to a balustraded landing, and a suit of armour stands up against the stairs. Beneath the landing is another door. If your experience and training are anything to go by, this door will lead to the servants' quarters. So we've got a choice. We can go to the door beneath the landing. I guess find out if the servants know anything. We can examine the suit of armour or go up the stairs. Let's examine the suit of armour. Stands out as a bit of an oddity amongst them. 
The armour is about a hundred years old and in very good condition. It has been inlaid with gold and silver and is probably quite valuable. You can't carry it with you though, so there's no real point in standing and looking at it. You start to turn away and then you notice something behind the armour, glinting yellow in the light from your hand lamp. You can't see what it is and you're not sure that you'll be able to reach it. Do you want to try or not? So if we want to try, we can do it with or without pickpocket skill. So I don't have the pickpocket skill. I'm going to say that discretion is the better part of valour. I don't particularly want to knock over a seat of armour to make a very loud and cliched clattering sound. I guess we'll go up the stairs. You slip quietly up the stairs and onto the balcony. There is a door immediately on your left and a short landing leading off the balcony to your right. Three doors open onto the landing. Do you want to try the door on the left or investigate the doors on the landing? Well, left has never ever steered me wrong in the past, so we will try the door on the left. You put your ear to the door but hear nothing. Trying the handle, you find that the door is locked. Do you have the picklock skill? So I do, we'll try that. The door opens with a soft click and you find yourself in a large study. A huge wooden desk stands against one wall. Also in the room are a bookcase and a few plush-looking chairs. Above the desk hangs a life-sized portrait of a middle-aged man, very well-dressed and obviously wealthy. Brass the Merchant. The windows to the room are barred, but the bars can be opened from the inside. You close the door softly behind you and advance into the room. What do you want to do next? There's a picture of the room, and we're seeing it from outside as if peering in from the top of the roof and yeah it's a nice it's an unusual framing for a picture of a room i rather like it everything in this is really really selling me on the idea that i am a thief sneaking about in port black sand this is great so we're going to search the desk i mean i'm terrible for leaving random tat in drawers who's to say that brass isn't exactly the same you search the desk carefully there are some papers relating to business deals in which Brass has been involved recently, but you can't find anything about the Eye of the Basilisk. You may help yourself to a silver paper knife worth five gold pieces, but you find nothing else of interest or value. What will you do next? I'll definitely take the silver paper knife, um, and we can search the rest of the room, leave the room via the window, or leave via the door and investigate the doors at the other end of the landing. So let's investigate the rest of the room. You search the study rapidly and turn up the following items of interest. A bottle of excellent brandy worth one gold piece, or you can take up to three drinks from it, each drink restoring two stamina points. So I think we'll uh, we'll quaff the brandy. So two-thirds of a bottle of brandy will restore four stamina points and definitely won't lead to any problems later on in the adventure. Uh, there's also a miniature painting in a silver frame worth two gold pieces. I mean, I might as well take the silver frame. You can always ditch these faintly valuable items uh, at a later point if it proves necessary. Uh, you also discover there is a safe hidden in the wall behind a portrait of brass. Do you want to search the desk? We've done that. Investigate the safe or leave the room. So we're going to investigate the safe. The safe is firmly set into the wall behind the picture. You estimate that the door is about four inches thick. And you wouldn't even be able to force it open if you knocked the wall down around it. It has two locks, one on either side of a wheel-shaped handle. 
if you have a key marked L and a key marked R, you can try and unlock them. I have neither. So you can try and open the safe with the pick lock skill or search the desk or leave. So we'll try and open the safe with the pick lock skill. There is a picture of the safe. It looks like a safe. I feel as though maybe I should have gone other places before rocking up to Brass's gaff to turn it over, but uh, that will be something for a subsequent playthrough. You choose a lock and start working on it. Suddenly, a tiny snake shoots out of the other lock and buries its fangs in your hand. Lose four stamina points to its poisonous bite. That takes away all four of the stamina points I gained from drinking two-thirds of a bottle of brandy. That reduces me to 17. guess I could take the opportunity to stuff a mushroom biryani down myself and regain those four points. I think I will do that. I'm going to eat a mushroom biryani, which will also soak up the alcohol I've in ingested and return my stamina to 21. There is a picture of a snake biting my hand as I pick the lock. It's really good. Very entertaining little detail picture. Very, very nice. Um, so I guess we can leave the room via the window or via the door. So I guess we'll leave via the door and investigate the other doors at the end of the landing. You cross the balcony to the landing. Three doors lead off the landing, one on the left and two on the right. At the end of the landing is a barred window. The bars are set into the brick of the windowsill and cannot be moved. You decide to listen at one of the doors. Ah, oh, delightful flashbacks to Warlock of Firetop Mountain. So much listening at doors in that one. Uh, which one do you want to listen to? The door on the left, the first door on the right, or the second door on the right? Well, we'll do the left again. You listen carefully at the door and hear the sound of loud snoring coming from within. You try the door and find that it is unlocked. You slip inside. Do you have the sneak skill? I do indeed. By the faint moonlight coming into the room, you see a large four-poster bed. Two people are asleep, Brass and his wife. At the foot of the bed stands a chair with clothes heaped upon it, and a rapid search of the clothes turns up ten gold pieces. So, gold pieces now ten. As you are about to leave, you see that around Brass's neck is a key on a silver chain. The key has a letter R on it. Do you want to try and take the key? And there's two options, one with pickpocket, one without. I guess I'm not going to take the key because I've already explored that room. I don't think I'll be able to go back into it. Maybe I will. I could be mistaken. But I don't have the L key either. This seems like a, a highway to nowhere. I mean, I guess there's nothing stopping me from trying to take the key and then just murdering Brass and his wife. I mean, it seems a bit horrible. But... At the end of the day, if they didn't want to get murdered, maybe they shouldn't have become immensely rich. Yeah, I think, against my better judgment, I am going to try and nick the key. This isn't going to be easy. You have to take the key from around Brass's neck without waking him. Roll two dice. If the result is equal or less than your skill, then something good happens. If the result is more than your skill, something bad happens. Well, my skill is 12, so... I can't fail, but I'm going to roll for the sake of rolling. Four and five gets me a nine. So we are successful. Slowly, painfully slowly, you lift the chain off Brass's neck, break it and take the key. Brass does not stir. Make a note of the key on your adventure sheet. It does not count as a backpack item. That is a nice detail. 
the key does not take up a backpack slot. This has been really, really carefully thought about in many ways. So we can now try the first door across the passage, second door across the passage, or go to the door at the other end of the landing. Let's try the first door across the passage. You put your ear against the door and listen, but hear nothing. What will you do now? Uh, we will go into the room, I think. The door is not locked, so you open it and creep stealthily into the room. It is furnished with a single bed, a wardrobe and a dressing table. Someone, a child, judging by the size, is asleep on the bed. You can see nothing of value in the room, just a few dolls on the dressing table and floor. Suddenly a floorboard creaks loudly under your feet. The sleeping form in the bed murmurs and stirs slightly. Will you go further into the room or leave? I think we will leave this room for now. I mean, I hate not investigating things, but I don't really want to have to stab a child. So I think we'll just leave. Rather than risk raising the alarm, you back quietly out of the room. What now? Uh, we'll listen at the next door. You listen at the door but hear nothing. Pushing it gently open, you see a young man in a large four-poster bed, sound asleep and snoring softly. A glance round the room reveals nothing of interest, so you leave, closing the door softly behind you. What now? So we can go back into the the study and try the door. Oh, I feel as though there must be. The L key must be in here somewhere. Maybe we are going to have to sneak across the room with the child. Let's try sneaking into the child's room and seeing if the key is in there. So we've re-entered the child's bedroom and we move cautiously forward, sneaking. And the person in the bed, a young girl, sits bolt upright with a shattering scream. You have no choice but to run before the whole household is woken. You hurry back to the market square, planning your next move. There's a great picture of the child sitting up in bed and screaming. The frame is, instead of being square, is a sort of jagged, spiky shape. It, it looks like a, a scream. Very, very cool. Only slight downside is that the child looks about 35. But that aside, really, really great piece of work. So we've uh, at least escaped without coming to any further harm. It's too dangerous to go back to Brass's house, so you'll have to do without any information that you could have gained from there. That leaves you two options. Either you can go to the Merchant's Guild, if you haven't already done so, or hope that you have enough information to find the Eye of the Basilisk and set out in search of it. I have no information about the Eye of the Basilisk, so the Merchant's Guild it is. The Merchant's Guild is on the south side of the Market Square opposite the Noose. The square is quiet now. All of the market stores have been packed away, and you can see no one as you make your way across. You keep to the edge of the square, hugging the shadows. The last thing you want is to be stopped and questioned by the city guard tonight of all nights. When you are about halfway across, you suddenly notice a movement among a clump of trees in the middle of the square. Do you want to investigate the movement or ignore it and carry on? I will investigate the movement. You approach the trees carefully, your eyes fixed on the place where you last saw movement. As you draw closer, can see movement again. There is definitely something in there, but it's too dark to see quite what it is. So we can try and sneak up on it, which is exactly what I will do. You approach the trees almost silently. 
As you draw closer, you can see a hunched form bent over something in the darkness. There is a sickly, sweet smell of rotting flesh coming from somewhere. What will you do? Hurry on across the square, attack the hunched figure, or touch the hunched figure? I think I will attack the hunched figure. I really need to find some information. I'm hoping that this hunched figure is a ghoul. Yeah, it is a ghoul. Your attack takes the thing entirely by surprise and it gives vent to an inhuman howl of pain as your sword bites into its shoulder. As the figure turns on you, you find that you have disturbed a ghoul from its nocturnal feast. And now it seems to have every intention of adding you to its grisly menu. You must fight the ghoul. So the ghoul has a skill of eight and a stamina of five. If the ghoul hits us four times, it's probably going to paralyze us. That's traditional. Ghouls really are the classic urban undead monster of choice. I approve. Very easy to imagine them living in the sewers or in tunnels beneath graveyards. Because they eat the flesh of the dead, they're going to go where the biggest supply of food is. And that is always going to be a city. So they're a great urban undead encounter. I really approve. With all of the preliminaries out of the way, I'm going to fight the ghoul. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the ghoul. Uh, it did no damage to me. The ghoul falls to the ground at your feet, twitches once, and is still. After pausing to catch your breath, you investigate what it was eating, and find to your disgust that it is a human corpse. Searching the chewed body quickly, you turn up two gold pieces and a dagger. So only one slot left in our backpack at this point. But we've already made enough from our nocturnal adventures for a meal for two at a chain restaurant. So uh, things are, are looking up despite our lack of progress in finding the clues about the jewel. You cross the square to the Merchant's Guild. It is an imposing building built in stone and several stories high. Facing onto the square is the great main door set into a deep doorway and made, so you have heard, of hardwood imported from the far south from beyond the desert of skulls. From the shadows you can see that the door is closed. It is manned by a single armed guard who does not appear to have noticed you. What will you do? Hide and watch the guard? Try and bribe the guard or look for another way in? I feel as though bribery ought to work. I mean, who's prepared to stick their neck out for the mercantile class? Don't get me wrong, society can't function without a mercantile class but they're not the sort of people who generally instill tremendous feelings of loyalty. But I think I'm just going to watch and see whether I can determine some useful information. The guard does not seem to be particularly alert. He leans against the wall a few feet from the door, and from the way his head keeps nodding, he appears to be on the verge of dropping off to sleep. You can try sneaking past him if you have the sneak skill, or bribing him, or look around for an unguarded entrance. There is a picture of the guard who looks, I would say, tired and also nonchalant. He looks like the sort of person who might well be up for being bribed. I think everyone in Port Blacksand looks shifty as a matter of course. That's just the ambience of the, uh, the city. So we'll try and sneak past him. We've got the sneak skill after all. Hugging the shadows, you work your way around to the side of the building and glide soundlessly up to the guard. 
He gives no sign of having noticed your approach. What will you do next? You can try and knock out the guard or try and open the door. Let's try and knock him out. Cudgelling the guard unconscious is a breaking and entering classic. You aim a blow at the back of the guard's unprotected head. Roll two dice. Is the result less than your skill? I mean, it is, but we'll roll anyway. Yeah, another nine. It's got to be less than. That's worth noting. So if if I'd rolled double sixes, I would actually have failed. Your blow hits the guard just behind one ear and he crumples to the ground unconscious. You pick him up and prop him in the doorway so it looks as though he's still awake. As you do so, you notice a symbol scratched into the doorframe. Do you have secret signs? I do not. It's one of the most convenient pieces of dramatic fiction that a sturdy blow to the head will render someone harmlessly asleep rather than, as in the real world, render them permanently brain damaged. Like in the real world, if you lose consciousness for more than a few seconds, the chances are you've just experienced a pretty serious brain injury. You can't make out the sign and you realise that it's probably a warning about the door. You decide to leave the door alone and look for another way in. You follow the alley along one side of the Merchant's Guild. After a few yards, it turns right sharply. And a few feet after that, you see an even narrower alley running off to your left, coming to a dead end after a few yards, with a door on the left and a drain pipe leading up past a window to the roof. You want to go down the alley to your left or carry on round the building? Uh, Let's go down the alley. You walk stealthily down the side alley, which appears to be deserted. Will you open the door, climb the drain pipe, or leave? So, we will climb the drain pipe. I took that climb skill. I'm determined to get value from it. It feels as though maybe picking pick lock and climb was redundant, but we will see. You start to climb the drain pipe. You do not need climb skill or a rope or grapnel because the drain pipe is an easy climb. Well, that's a bit rubbish. You climb to the window but find it securely barred, so you decide to carry on to the roof. Suddenly you hear a slight grating sound above you. You look up and see that one of the decorative gargoyles on the roof of the Merchant's Guild has come to life. It launches itself off its perch and flies down to attack you. You prepare to defend yourself as best you can. Deduct three from your attack strength because you are clinging to the drain pipe. And there is a picture, kind of like we're looking through the eyes of the protagonist, with a pair of very, very evil-looking gargoyles grinning malevolently above us. Um... John Civic has really taken the opportunity that this story affords of doing images from unusual angles and composing them in unusual ways. It really, really suits the material, even though I don't think he's necessarily the strongest illustrator in the fighting fantasy canon. He's really, really managed to make some quite mundane things look really interesting in this book. So the gargoyle has a skill of nine and a stamina of ten. That is problematical. If you win the first round of combat, something happens. If the gargoyle wins, then we lose two points of stamina and have to roll two dice. So I'm not actually going to play the dice rolling sting. I'm actually going to do this combat live because we're only doing one combat round. So my skill of 12 is reduced to 9, the same as the gargoyle. We're going for a straight 50-50 basically. I note that it doesn't tell you what to do if the first round of combat is a draw. So actually if 
the first round of combat is a draw. If you're following the rules as written, you simply proceed to the second round of combat and then fight the gargoyle as normal, except that once you defeat the gargoyle, there's no way out of the section. So, yeah, I assume that if we draw, then we're just going to have to run the first round of combat again. But uh, small rules oversight there from Graham Davis. So the gargoyle rolls a four. I roll a four as well. So literally we've drawn the first round of combat, though it makes me look remarkably prescient and clever. Um, but yeah, we're just going to go on to the second round of combat and treat it as the first. This time the gargoyle rolls a six. And I roll an eight, which means I've won the first round of combat. Let's find out what happens. With a stony clink, your weapon bounces harmlessly off the gargoyle's magical hide. What will you do now? Use a magical weapon? Would love to. Try some other means? Would love to. I mean, unless the gargoyle particularly wants a packet of barbecue flavour hula hoops. We're in a, a bit of a jam. I mean, silver paper knife, could that be any good? I doubt it. So the other option is keep fending it off and hope for the best. Keep doing what you're doing and pray that it turns out to be fine somehow, even though it's clearly a terrible idea, a.k.a. the Tory answer. A little bit of politics for you there. I try not to make too much of a habit of it. We're going to have to go for some other means. You realise that you can't harm the gargoyle without a magical weapon, but there may be another way of dealing with it. Do you have a rope and grapnel? I do not. A black hooded cloak? Not that either. Or a heavy length of chain? I don't have that either. So, it doesn't tell you what to do if you don't have those. But, fortunately, I kept a, a sausagey finger on the previous paragraph, so... My only option is to just keep fighting it in the hope that it'll forget that it's immune to non-magical weapons. A stony claw rips your shoulder open. You are torn from the drainpipe and plummet to the alley below. Lose three stamina points. Stamina now 18. If you are still alive, and I am, you can try and hide. I will try and hide. You crawl dazedly into the shadows and close your eyes, waiting for the gargoyle to strike. The sound of its wings comes closer and closer, and then it suddenly recedes. You look cautiously upwards to see the gargoyle's shadowy form back on the rooftop perch. Obviously, it didn't see where you fell, and you thank the gods of luck that it is too stupid to keep looking for very long. Add one luck point for this fortunate escape. I mean, I think if we're handing out awards for stupidity, my approach of, I'm just going to keep fighting this magical creature even though I can't hurt it, probably puts me about on equal footing with the gargoyle. And I can't add the luck point because my luck's still at maximum. So what do we want to do now? Try the back door or climb to the roof? I guess we try the back door. From the start of this book, it's really felt like a great simulation of what it's like to be a fantasy thief. And as time goes on, it's turning into a remarkable simulation of what it's like to be a very incompetent fantasy thief, which I also quite like. You try the handle of the door. It is not locked and opens with a faint creak. You step cautiously into a darkened room. By the light of your hand lamp, you see that the room is furnished with a long table and several chairs. Possibly it is some kind of meeting room. At the same time, you become aware of heavy 
breathing coming from somewhere in the room. Will you creep out and climb the drain pipe if you haven't already done so? Creep out and climb to the roof by some other route or stay where you are. Heavy breather. Um, I've got a hide skill which apparently will help so I think we'll just find out and hope that the heavy breather is a monster and not someone just having a private moment. You shrink into the shadows, hardly daring to breathe. As your eyes become accustomed to the light, you see a dark shape in a chair, the source of the breathing. Also in the room is a long table and a door at the far end. Will you investigate the dark form or leave through the far door? And I still have precisely zero clues, so I'm going to have to investigate the dark form. You creep closer to the dark shape and see that it is a man in tattered clothes, probably a beggar, fast asleep. You smile to yourself. A beggar in the Merchant's Guild, eh? Not a bad place to spend the night at that. Do you want to wake him? I think I do. The beggar wakes with a start. Don't hurt me, he whines. I've done no harm. All I wanted was somewhere to sleep out of the weather. He's clearly frightened of you. He probably thinks that you're a guild official or a night watchman. Will you pretend to be a watchman and order him out, or will you tell him that you're a friend? I mean, he's thief adjacent. I'm not pretending to be a narc to get rid of a guy who's just trying to get out of the cold. I think I'll just try and be friendly. The beggar almost collapses with relief. Oh, I thought I'd had it there, he gasps. You were just wondering why the door was left unlocked when he produces a set of lockpicks with a grin. Here, he says. That's how I got in. You can put them to good use, I'm sure. Add one luck point for this fortunate meeting. So we've got lockpicks, which give us the lockpick skill, which is a shame, because um, I've already picked that one. Um, and they don't count as a backpack item, which is also sensible as lockpicks are tiny. So I don't think I'll take them off him, obviously. He can hang on to those. Uh, we'll leave him to it. You thank the beggar for the lockpicks, wish him pleasant dreams, and leave. The door leads to a passage. Off the passage is a kitchen containing nothing of interest and a lobby from which stairs lead up to the first floor. You creep up the stairs and find yourself in a carpeted passage with a door on either side. The door on the left has the symbol of a coin painted on to a wooden plaque which is attached to it. The door on the right has the symbol of a fish. We can check the passage for traps if we have spot hidden, which we don't. Open the door to the left or the door to the right. Well, the left one with the coin is Brass's mark. So that's the one we will open. Do I want to eat something before I... No, I don't. No, no, I'm fine. You head for the door, but before you can reach it, you step on something under the carpet. There is a loud click. Suddenly, does love the word suddenly. Suddenly, a small panel in the wall at floor level flies open and a jib-jib. A small, strange-looking creature, little more than a furball on legs, flies out. You have to kill it in a single blow. You know that its howling is loud enough to be heard in Zengis, and it will bring guards running to the scene. Attack the jib-jib normally. So the jib-jib has a skill of one and a stamina of two. Again, I'm not going to do the uh, sound effect for a fight. We'll do the fight live. Let's see if I can kill the jib-jib in one blow. Don't feel particularly good about this. I'm nothing if not an animal lover. So the jib-jib gets an attack score of 11. I get an attack score of 19. So I've won the first round of combat. Probably just stepped on it and squashed it into a red paste. 
you manage to kill the jib-jib before it can make a sound. Just as well, you've heard that their screams can be heard miles away. And the last thing you want to do is let the whole town know that someone's broken into the Merchant's Guild. Wiping your sword, you turn your attention to the door. Which one will you try first? We'll go for the coin symbol. It's a pretty cool fantasy alarm trap, to be fair. I like it a lot. You try the door, but it is locked. Do you have the lockpick skill? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. The lock opens with a faint click, and you slip through the doorway into a large, well-appointed office. Moonlight filters in through a barred window, and a huge and richly carved wooden desk stands against one wall, with a padded leather chair set in front of it. Across a deep, luxurious carpet, a large and strong-looking iron door is set into another wall. Do you want to search the desk or examine the iron door? I think we'll go for a searching of the desk. Aha! You search the desk thoroughly. There are three drawers on one side, two are locked, but you find some keys in the third drawer and unlock them. There's a picture of the desk. It's a, it's a desky sort of desk. It's another sort of almost looking through the eyes of the protagonist shot that makes it look a lot more interesting than it would otherwise. Yeah, it's good. So, in the desk you find a key marked with a letter L, another ten gold pieces. At this rate we'll be able to go out for a fancy chain restaurant meal. It's good that we know where the keys are to be found. Ooh, there's a deed of purchase showing that Brass recently bought a piece of land called Barrow Hill. A letter from the wizard Brabantius telling Brass that the Barrow Hill property has been refitted according to your instructions. The two documents are an important clue. Uh, so we need to make a note of that. So I guess that's going to be a safe house where he's stored the Eye of the Basilisk. Uh, you can examine the Iron Door or leave the Merchant's Guild to search Brass's house. Unfortunately, we can't do that because we've done it before. So um, we'll examine the Iron Door. The door is very solid. It appears almost impossible to open by force. And the lock is one of the largest and most complicated you have ever seen. If you have the pick lock skill, you can try and open it, but it won't be easy. Roll two dice and add two to the score. So we'll try that. We're looking at a ten or less. Seven. There is a loud click, and the great iron door swings open easily despite its obvious weight. Inside is a strong room packed with chests and boxes. You step inside to take a look. Do you have spot hidden? I do not. As you are examining the strong room, you hear a soft, grating sound and see a movement from the corner of your eye. Turning round, you are amazed to find yourself being charged by a chest. At least, it looks like a chest, but it has a stumpy leg at each corner and it gnashes its lid viciously. You turn to flee, but the iron door clangs shut. You are trapped and must fight the chest creature. There is a picture of the chest creature. It is a mimic. It is absolutely a mimic. It doesn't have the now classic long purple tongue that mimics have. But yeah, it is absolutely a mimic, but in a way that is legally distinct. So uh, the chest creature has a skill of five and a stamina of six. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the chest creature. It did not do any damage to me. At last, the chest creature is destroyed. A rapid search of the strong room reveals nothing of interest except a small silver whistle. Make a note of this on your adventure sheet. If you take it, it is not a backpack item. Got a lot of silver things. 
Then you turn your attention to how you are going to get out. The door is closed fast and no amount of pushing or pulling will shift it. There is no keyhole on the inside so you can't even pick the lock. You are about to give up in despair when you see a symbol scratched on the wall. Do you have secret signs? I do not. The symbol means nothing to you. If you have the spot hidden, there's still a way out. Otherwise, there is nothing for it but to wait until someone finds you and face the music. You have failed your test and your adventure ends here. Well, I don't think there's any mileage in the Sausage Finger bookmark rule. I've been recording for well over an hour. So I think we will end the adventure there. It feels like an appropriate point to end the adventure. I think I'm also motivated by the fact that I know I probably can't complete the adventure because I did things in the wrong order. However, I do feel like I know where I went wrong, which is cool. And I will be trying again off mic and reporting back on how I feel about Midnight Rogue as a whole in a couple of seconds for you and probably a couple of days for me. Tatty bye! So that was Midnight Rogue. The headline is that this is a pretty good time and I'm disappointed actually that Graham Davis didn't manage to write another entry in the series because he brings a lot of good things to the table and I think his second effort would probably have fixed some of the nagging issues that I've got with this book. It's arguably too easy and there's a few poor choices trying to undercut the good choices but there's definitely a lot more good than bad overall and it broadly succeeds in delivering on the promise of doing naughty thief things in old Port Blacksand town. Let's talk about the overall structure first. It's pretty simple and I don't mean that as a complaint. You get to do various criminal deeds in Port Blacksand in order to find the hidden location of the Eye of the Basilisk and then it's off to a challenge dungeon on the edge of town to face a gauntlet of tricks and traps that, spoilers, turn out to be part of the elaborate trial designed by your masters in the Thieves Guild. It's a bit like if all heroin addicts had to go to the Crystal Maze before they were allowed to shoplift electrical goods from a retail park. Like most fictional Thieves Guilds, it doesn't really stand up to close scrutiny. Ray Liotta in Goodfellas aside, most crime is a response to economic circumstances, and social circumstances rather than a structured career path. If you've got criminal tendencies but you're from a good economic background, the traditional career path is rather than stealing stereos out of cars to just go into politics. Still, I'm not going to complain because the Thieves Guild of Fantasy Fiction is a beloved archetype in literature and the chance to be on the inside of the criminal underworld that is a rare thing in game books that usually cast you as a relatively unproblematic hero or at least a sellsword with your heart in the right place. And if there's one thing that this book does really well it's sell the idea that you are a thief in a fantasy world. The first half of the book is all about the breaking and the entering and the sneaking about and the dungeon which concludes the narrative is constantly giving you the chance to use those thief skills in order to deal with threats. I love a game book that commits to the fantasy and isn't afraid to deploy cliches in order to serve that fantasy. Davis has done a generally superb job of making the premise land. 
You can skulk, climb, pick locks and sneak to your heart's content. Maybe a bit more actual pickpocketing would have been nice, but to be honest, I'm just quibbling. I said at the start that this kind of iteration on the fighting fantasy system makes great sense, and that definitely holds true throughout this book. I think that the use of thief skills to give you that impression of being a fantasy thief is a great design choice. And it's one that we've seen deployed successfully in various contexts throughout the fighting fantasy series. Citadel of Chaos almost got there on literally the second book by giving you the chance to choose a bunch of spells that went with your character. But I think a skill system where you get a smaller number of permanent ways of dealing with challenges actually works even better in practice. It places only a small additional load on the player and you don't get the thing where you end the book with a bunch of unused spells because you are scared of wasting them. You know that your skills aren't going to be used up. I also think it's easier to balance for the writer as well. Added to which you get to use skills to enhance the flavour of your game book, whether that's the thief skills of Midnight Rogue or a point with Fear's superhero powers, which is another great example of this kind of system being deployed really well. A spell list is a list of tools, but a list of skills can become part of your character if you're doing it right. I liked the idea that I could create a climbing, sneaking, lockpicking, cat burglar character, or someone who was a bit more like a footpad who was good at hiding in the shadows and watching for an opening to surprise people. Any role-playing system that helps you imagine your character in more detail is a good system and skills hit the sweet spot of requiring almost zero explanation and we saw this used to really great effect in Dave Morris's book Heart of Ice which ditched the dice completely in favour of a fairly detailed skill system and that book was none the worse for it it just played so well and it was a lot of fun playing through with different archetypes and different packages of skills. I like that you can use skills as much or as little makes sense for the narrative because the cost of entry for the player is so low in terms of them having to understand complicated systems. It's not like if you design a complicated alligator wrestling minigame complete with a brand new alligator focused stat only to realise that actually your narrative moves to the mountains halfway through rendering alligator wrestling largely pointless for the second half. That's a huge problem because you've asked the player to invest quite a lot of mental effort in understanding how to wrestle alligators. But if you just give them an alligator wrestling skill, they go, oh great, my character knows how to wrestle alligators. The book will tell me as and when that crops up. And if you don't get to use it, it doesn't feel like the biggest waste in the world. Now the skills in Midnight Rogue never feel irrelevant and Davis has done a banger job of choosing skills that feel appropriate and allow you to do a bunch of thief stuff. And there is an abundance of classic breaking and entering trope. You're knocking out guards, you're lifting a key from a sleeping mark, you're ducking and diving to avoid the law, you're clambering up a drain pipe and then falling off the drain pipe because of magical gargoyles. It all feels intensely appropriate and it helps hide the fact that from a design perspective, Port Black Sand is rather less well-drawn than it was in City of Thieves. Where City of Thieves is a joyous travelogue through a raucous cityscape, Midnight Rogue is much more focused, at least partly because 
it is all taking place at night. You've got three locations to explore in the city, then you're off Dungeon Woods for the climax. You do get the opportunity to take in the sights a little before you head off. If you fail to track down the location of the Eye of Basilisk correctly, you can go on a small tour of a few classic locations, including Nicodemus's hut by the river under the bridge and Baron Azur's impregnable palace. Nothing good will happen if you do those things, but it's nice to have the option to visit these, these familiar places. There's some nice use of time. There's a set order you need to do the three locations in, but that order is well telegraphed by the text and you can easily visit all three in your first playthrough, as I did, so it's unlikely to take you more than two goes to get everything you need. It's not like the bit in Creature of Havoc where you have to do something very specific when you enter a village, and if you don't do that very specific thing, there's an entire chunk of the adventure that you just simply will not get to experience. You can see where you've gone wrong on your first playthrough and make adjustments as you go on. That's a nice feeling. And the design of those three locations I think is pleasantly intricate. Davis has made a really good fist of it because they feel like proper three-dimensional places. And the fact that they have multiple different approaches you can take that feels really realistic as well. If there's a complaint, it's that often in the first half, the sensible options are a little too clearly flagged. There's some quite entertaining chunks that a player with their brain screwed on is unlikely to encounter before beating the game. And I've said before that there's a curious dance you have to do with game books, whereby sometimes what looks to be the obvious right choice, it just needs to be the wrong choice to keep people on their toes. Otherwise, there's chunks of your book you might as well have not written. Now, top-tier gamebook writing is where you regularly make all of the available options seem tempting. That's what makes people want to go back and find out what happens if they take different decisions apart from anything else. It's all very well saying, do you want to step into the Piranha Pond or not? Most people will go, I won't step into the Piranha Pond. I can imagine the bad thing that will happen. But if you can write it in such a way that it seems as though stepping into the Piranha Pond might actually still be a really good idea, then people are more likely to go back and try that option and then be unsurprised when they get eaten by piranhas. But the point is putting that seed in their mind that maybe, just maybe, something wonderful will happen if you take off all your clothes and lie down in the piranha pond. However, that difficulty issue shouldn't take away from what are, in the first half at least, a series of extremely well-designed set pieces which make use of time and space to create a very vivid seeming experience that has a distinctly urban character to it. And the way the skills are integrated into the narrative is very nice. There's lots of options to use most of the available skills, even if secret science is basically useless and pickpocket isn't a great deal better. There's also chances to pick up bonus items, which gives you access to many of the skills, which does provide a rationale for exploring more thoroughly. So like there's a, uh, a grapple and uh, rope that will effectively give you the climb skill. There's a set of 
lock picks that will effectively give you the pick lock skill. I'd strongly advise taking spot hidden though, as I couldn't find an item that duplicated that skill, which, you know, makes sense. I'm not sure what a noticer would even look like if you don't want to get magical with it. Maybe some kind of trained parrot in a cage squawking warnings about traps that it's seen. Anyway, you'll definitely want access to as many skills as possible for the final challenge dungeon and Spot Hidden also makes that dungeon a great deal easier. If the opening act is a masterclass in three-dimensional encounter design, the second half is much, much, much more linear. The dungeon is essentially a list of encounters in a corridor which must be overcome one after the other. I don't want to spoil these because they're all at least interesting and many of them feel suitably devilish for a challenge dungeon, but they are very much arranged in a row. Now, I personally love an artificial dungeon precisely because it gives you an excuse for the kind of stupid traps that would make zero sense in a more grounded setting. For me, a dungeon that exists for no better purpose than to try and kill anyone who sets foot in it in preferably very silly ways is the ideal dungeon. In the real world, a big locked door is much better security than a locked door with the key stored next to it in a big jar of scorpions. But I know which one I'd rather come across in a game book or a tabletop RPG. Give me the jar of scorpions every time. I love a jar of scorpions. It's a shame in some ways that the final section is quite so linear, but actually as I was playing through it, it didn't detract all that much. The traps and challenges are nicely designed so that you get to make meaningful choices within each encounter and that distracts quite pleasantly from the simple design of the dungeon. Linearity is a big problem when you feel helpless but things like escape rooms demonstrate that you can create tension and agency even if people are geographically very constrained. And my first gamebook in fact was an exercise in trying to create stories and meaningful decisions within the confines of a Victorian house which was big, like very big, by the standards of a house that a normal person could buy, but in no way, shape or form a mansion. It wasn't Resident Evil, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Even though the dungeon is not actually all that difficult, the sequence of high-pressure decisions and dice rolls means that I felt a real sense of accomplishment when I got through it all for the first time. There's a bunch of neat tricks to drain your stamina and, in one case, your luck. In particular, I like that there's several points where you get into a jam and you need to make a roll to get out. And you fail that roll and you lose some stamina. But rather than it being an instant death, you get to keep making the roll until you succeed or until the stamina drain kills you. And the fact that there's a few of these does create a sense of tension and a sense of peril you're not actually particularly likely to die because you've got 10 provisions to stuff down yourself plus i guess a stamina potion if you took that one but it's a nice recurring motif if you didn't have between 40 and 62 bonus stamina in your back pocket i think it would probably work out as being quite nicely balanced once again cleaving to the early version of the rules 
does kind of come back to haunt the creator. I do also want to shout out the artwork again because John Civic does a terrific job. There's so many cool angles that he chooses to illustrate from, which serve to highlight the difference between a thief as a protagonist and your classic sword swing adventurer. The little uh, mini illustrations that break up the text show mostly hands doing thiefy stuff like picking locks. He's created illustrations for things that you just wouldn't get in most game books, and it helps give this book such a strong identity that's probably its single biggest selling point. He's also used the brilliant Ian McCaig illustrations from City of Thieves as a reference point for Port Blacksand itself. So there's loads of neat visual reminders of that book, and it ends up elevating both books and the setting as a whole. And I think Midnight Rogue, although Port Blacksand isn't as, as vibrant as it is in City of Thieves, it's another part of the reason why that city remains fighting fantasy's most vivid locale. There's really not much more to say on this one. This isn't going to go down as one of the absolute classics, I don't think, but it's a strong entry that misses out on greatness largely by virtue of a somewhat underwhelming second half and a poorly judged difficulty level. Neither of these undoes the really good work that the book has had put into it, and the simple skill system adds depth and complexity in a manageable way whilst also doing some cracking world building. It's got a few frustrations, not least that one of the clues you can find basically tells you where the dungeon is, but you're still going to need the two other much less helpful clues to officially find the place. But at least they're all pretty straightforward to find. That means there's only actually three magic numbers across the whole book as well, and that's a nice bit of restraint. There's also a neat thing where there's a couple of places where if you claim to have a certain non-existent item, the book will call you out for cheating and say, there's no way you could have that item. Please go back to the beginning and start again. And I think that's a much more fun way to deal with so-called cheaters than trying to outfox them at every turn and making the book much, much, much less user-friendly for everyone else. So, yeah, big thumbs up for that. It's not always the easiest book to get hold of. We're at the point in the series where anything under 20 quid with postage and packaging is probably a good deal but it can be snagged for less if you're patient, and there's also PDFs out there. And I'm going to go on record as saying PDFs are absolutely fine for books that are functionally out of print. Thanks to my patrons, so far I've been able to justify spending the money on the physical books because I want to review the actual thing itself, and also my patrons give me money to support the podcast. Spending that money on game books seems a good use of those resources, but it has to be said that we are into a, a situation where the books are only getting pricier on average as we get into the more obscure entries in the series, and occasionally I come across one that's not pricey, and I think to myself, I bet that's rubbish. I'll be back with another episode soon, when we'll be playing Chasms of Malice. Great title. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, then you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. 
If you've had a nice time with this episode, then a rating or a review would really help me out. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>